Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, February 23rd, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topscher with today's headlines. Albania agrees to host migrants for Italy. Japan's Nikkei index surges past 1989's record high. Leaked files allegedly expose China's international hacking efforts. A UK House of Commons speaker faces calls to resign over a Gaza ceasefire vote. The CIA's chief travels to Paris for Israeli hostage deal talks. The U.S. faces multiple cell service outages. A Texas judge rules a school can enforce short hair. A study finds COVID deaths are likely higher than official records. Google apologizes for its AI image generator's historical inaccuracies. And a defunct European satellite crashes to Earth. In our first story, Albania approves a migrant center deal with Italy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Fox News, The Journal, and Al Jazeera. Albania's parliament voted 77-0 to Thursday to approve a five-year deal with Italy to hold migrants while their asylum requests are being processed. Members of the conservative opposition party sat out of the vote in protest. Under the deal, which was signed by Albanian Prime Minister Edi Rama and Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney in November, Italy will pay Albania 600 million euros to build two processing centers that will hold up to 3,000 migrants at any given time. The agreement places Italy fully in charge of operating the facilities and legally responsible for the migrants throughout the asylum process. Italy would also take migrants in if their requests were granted. Albania is expected to house upwards of 36,000 asylum seekers per year under the agreement. For those whose asylum requests are denied, Italy will also be in charge of facilitating their deportations from Albania. Rama's Socialist Party was previously blocked from holding the vote by the Conservatives, 30 of whom filed an unsuccessful attempt to block the deal with the to block the deal with the Constitutional Court. Italy's lower and upper chambers of parliament approved the bill in January and this month. This comes as migrant arrivals in Italy jumped from 103,850 in 2022 to 155,750 last year, a 50% increase. Among last year's arrivals were over 17,000 unaccompanied minors. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa laid out the facts for us, and our first spin is the left narrative from Amnesty International. This agreement flies in the face of both the international and European laws Italy is supposed to follow. Countries are required to immediately take in and process refugees on the land they arrived. But Italy is now going to send these vulnerable asylum seekers, who already trekked across the ocean to reach Italy, hundreds of miles away to a different country where they could then be deported. Here's the right narrative from the European Conservative. Under the current system propped up by the mass migration nonprofit industry, Italy has received over a million migrants in the past 10 years. The reason Italy needed this deal is because as these large waves of migrants come ashore, they eventually disappear into the country after checking into a processing center. Italy deserves to control who they accept and reject, which is why Albania is lending a hand. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 1% chance that any of Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and or Germany 
will leave the EU before 2027. Well, it seems like they're coming to a, a deal. I can't imagine being Italy right now and just massive amounts of people. I mean, you heard a 50% increase in the, in the amount of migrants. I don't know. It doesn't seem fair that it's like, well, you're the closest to Africa, so we're just going to land on your boot. Well, and Italy used the fact that its boot was sticking out into the middle of the Mediterranean to dominate the Western world for hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> so the good the good news is you're in the center of everything and you can take over the world. Right. Bad news is when you're not taking over the world, you're still in the center of everything and everyone can just, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, the center, you know, being in the center of something is good and bad. I, I prefer the edges, the, the shadowy corners. Japan's Nikkei index surges past the 1989 record high. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Japan Today, The Guardian, Dawn.com, The New York Times, and Bloomberg. Japan's Nikkei 225 stock average hit a record closing high on Thursday after the blue chip index increased to 3,908.68, surpassing the previous highest closing level of 3,891587, recorded in 1989. The Nikkei 225, a benchmark stock index in Japan, rose as high as 39,156.97 points, also beating the previous intraday all-time peak of 38,957.44 points achieved on December 29, 1989. The market was reportedly boosted after NVIDIA's shares jumped 12% in pre-market trade as the U.S. chipmaker posted increased earnings forecasted first-quarter revenue growth of 233% due to demand for its artificial intelligence chips. The Nikkei is up 17% since the beginning of 2024, which, according to data from Japan Exchange Group, has been influenced by foreign investors who invested $14 billion into the market in January. Share prices in Tokyo have risen approximately 44% in the past year, while stocks have fallen more than 11%, and 22% in Shanghai and Hong Kong, respectively, from 12 months ago. This comes after a decrease in GDP and the value of the yen caused the country to slip into a technical recession, with Japan losing its position as the world's third largest economy. Thank you, Scott, for those facts, and we'll begin the spins with Narrative A from CNN. Record gains in Japan's benchmark stock index are driven by improved corporate governance and investment flows diverted from the battered Chinese stock market. The blue chip index has successfully defied a recession in Japan alongside wars in Europe and the Middle East. While it may be volatile in the short term, the Nikkei could once again become Asia's most valuable stock market as Tokyo shows signs of change. And Bloomberg brings us narrative B. The current boom in the Nikkei could be a fleeting affair, and it's too early to suggest that Japan is on course for global dominance. The long-term outlook for Japanese equities remains one fueled by skepticism, no matter how bullish foreign investors are today, until the Bank of Japan learns from its past mistakes and the country fixes its political trajectory, economic challenges, including inflation and slow wage growth, will not go away. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 75% chance that the S&P 500 index will go up over 2024. I'm a man-child, so I know that prominent Japanese company Nintendo just missed its earnings, I guess. They Uh, announced that the new Nintendo Switch, which is their handheld-slash-gaming system, uh, the new one wasn't going to come out until next year. It was supposed to come out this year, so their stock dropped. uh, Yeah. 
Yeah, but the anticipation of that new Nintendo Switch. I mean, honestly, I think it's a good time to buy if you were so inclined. Mario ain't going away. No, he's not. No. Now Charlie Day will forever be the voice of of Luigi. And that makes me pretty happy. Voiceover gig. God. (laughs) Yeah. Charlie Day. I'm in love with Charlie Day. I don't know the man, but I have slapped his hand. I gave him a high five one time. Yeah. In Philly. Charlie Day. When they were doing the um, the Nightman musical, you know, the uh, famously Dayman Nightman, the episode of It's Always Sunny. Uh, yeah. But at one point they did a they hit the road and did theaters and did the thing, did the show. Oh, that's fun. And I did. I saw them in San Francisco. My friend Jake paid for the tickets. He had American Express points. And he I remember when people do nice things for me and uh, he bought the <laughs> tickets with his American Express points. And so I got to go for he bought the tickets. Oh, and, that's uh, nice. That was very nice. And at one point, they were doing these smallish theater, pretty big theaters, but smallish theaters. And yeah. um, at one point, Charlie Day was wearing his full y- yellow suit, the whole Day Man outfit, and he leaned over the side of the stage and put his hand up. And I was in like the fifteenth row, and I ran up and slapped his hand. Nice. And like he wanted, I think you were supposed to. No one stopped me. I don't know what happened. Yeah. But I, like. Hey, Charlie Day's holding his hand out there and there's no one else. Like there's he's on the edge of the stage. I don't know what you're supposed to do. So I ran (laughs) over and I slapped Day Man's hand. Did anyone else? Or is it just like you got the cue? I think I just ran down there and did it. I don't know. Now, I was relatively close thanks to these these uh, American Express approved tickets. Don't leave home without it. You know. Leaked files allegedly exposed China's international hacking efforts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, the Associated Press, Bloomberg, BNN, Washington Post, and New York Times. A cache containing leaked files alleged from a PRC state-linked group, which was posted on GitHub and experts consider to be authentic, indicates how Beijing works with hundreds of private hacking companies to obtain sensitive information from foreign governments and firms. The documents, which only list targets and summaries of sample data, come from Shanghai-based iSoon, also known as Oxen, a firm that has reportedly signed hundreds of deals with Chinese police, including multi-year contracts costing as much as $800,000. The dump reveals that the hacking group infiltrated accounts on platforms such as Microsoft, Apple, and X, breached telecommunications companies in Malaysia, and gained access to 95.2 gigabytes of immigration data from India, as well as 3 terabytes of call logs from South Korea's LGU+. Additionally, according to a review by Bloomberg News, these documents show successful attacks on high-value government targets over the past years. From the UK Foreign Office, to the Royal Thai Army, to NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg. Two unnamed iSoon employees reported that the company and Chinese police are investigating how the files were leaked, as its source remains unknown. iSoon reportedly held a meeting on Wednesday, telling its employees that it wouldn't affect business significantly. This comes as the FBI director warned allies at the Munich Cybersecurity Conference last week that hackers affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party have infiltrated critical U.S. infrastructure including power stations and phone companies, and are poised to attack. All right. Thanks, Melissa. We have an anti-China narrative from Business Insider. 
These leaked hacking documents corroborate long-made claims that China has indeed carried out widespread and effective cyber espionage, both at home and abroad, stealing personal and corporate data at an unprecedented rate. China represents a massive threat to cybersecurity, and it's about time for the free world to fight back. And the pro-China narrative comes from the Global Times. Beijing has firmly opposed and taken legal action against cyber attacks, even urging the international community to build a peaceful, open, cooperative, and orderly cyberspace. Yet once again, the West is smearing China for alleged hacking operations, only to cover up that America is the main hacking state in the world. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 6% chance that there will be active warfare between the United States and China before 2027. There are calls for the UK's House of Commons Speaker to resign after the Gaza vote. Here are the facts as agreed upon by various sources within the UK Parliament and BBC News. Over 50 Conservative and Scottish National Party, or SNP, members of Parliament have supported a no-confidence early-day motion concerning UK House of Commons Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle submitted on Thursday. The motion of no confidence follows Hoyle's decision to break with parliamentary convention, introducing a Labour Party amendment in addition to a government amendment concerning the SNP's Opposition Day motion calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Hoyle, a former Labour lawmaker, claimed a need to consider the widest possible range of options on a highly sensitive topic, and that Labour's amendment had to be considered first as Standing Order 31 ordered no amendment would be introduced after a government amendment. Deputy Speaker Rosie Winterton confirmed that following the government's decision to play no further part in voting and withdraw their amendment if the then de facto Labour majority passed their party amendment. There wouldn't be a vote on SNP's immediate ceasefire motion. Earlier, Tom Goldsmith, clerk of the House of Commons, had written to the Speaker to place on the record his view that a decision would contradict long-established conventions, and it was consequently possible the chamber would not be able to vote on the SNP motion. The Labor Party's amendment also called for an immediate ceasefire. However, the legislation removed an SNP call for the end of the alleged collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Hoyle later apologized for his decision-making concerning the vote. Here's a narrative A from The Telegraph. Labor's behavior in the Commons can only be described as disgraceful. Hoyle's veil of impartiality has been destroyed, and Labor has been exposed as willing to manipulate parliamentary procedure and disregard the democratic values of Opposition Day for their own benefit. Hoyle must go, and Labor should be ashamed. The Guardian counters with Narrative B. Hoyle acted out of genuine concern for the safety and security of Labor lawmakers who have faced countless threats over their stances on the conflict in Gaza. In contrast, the Conservative Party sought to plunge the House into procedural chaos instead of allowing discussions over the horrors of the Middle East to receive due focus. While Starmer has somehow escaped the SNP's motion without a public party divide, nobody should be proud of what's happened in Parliament. And we have a narrative C in this story from Wings Over Scotland. While the SNP's motion on an immediate ceasefire had nothing more than symbolic consequences and was largely fueled by selfish intentions to undermine Labour's political position, the extent of the contempt that the voice of Scotland was treated by Hoyle and the Commons is unacceptable. As long as London squabbles over theatrics and Hoyle remains Speaker, 
The people of Scotland, alongside the people of Gaza, will continue to be disrespected. Yeah, but it really appeals to me to have a whole country connected by a network of trains. That's just it's really cool. <laughs> Are you talking about Scotland and uh, England, Britain? Scotland, being able to take a train from Wales all the way up to John O'Groats really appeals to me. Mm. Uh, I wish our country were a little smaller and we could we could do all that. But uh... I saw a idea for like a big train cycle that goes if you took a circle from Boston all the way down to Washington, D.C., and then turn and it ends up going to St. Louis, Chicago, then up Detroit, up and around, hits Montreal, then comes back down. And you can take that loop in one day if they did it the right way. Um, That would be awesome. That sounds great. The CIA chief is expected in Paris and Israel will send a delegation. Here are the facts as agreed upon. By Axios, The Times of Israel, Jerusalem Post, Reuters, and the Associated Press. CIA Director Bill Burns is expected in Paris on Friday to discuss a new hostage deal and a pause in the fighting in Gaza. A senior Biden administration advisor reportedly told Israeli officials that progress had been made in Cairo between Hamas and Egyptian and Qatari mediators. Possibly in response to U.S. reports of Hamas's flexibility, the Israeli War Cabinet voted to send a delegation to the Paris talks late on Thursday. The government has not yet confirmed the decision, however. Meanwhile, Israeli media claimed on Wednesday that the country's security apparatus was was preparing to roll out a pilot plan in which Israel would establish humanitarian pockets in cleared districts of Gaza City possibly its Zaytun neighborhood, and install local Palestinian leaders unaffiliated with Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. An unnamed Israeli official said that implementing such a system of governance, which both Hamas and the PA called unworkable, would take time, and Israel was aware that no one will come forward if they think Hamas will put a bullet in their head. Regardless of Israel's plan for the strips, regardless of Israel's plan for the strips post-war governance, clashes in Gaza City, where Israel said Hamas had largely been defeated, continued on Thursday after fighting erupted earlier this week in the city's Zaytun neighborhood. Intense fighting was also reported in the center of the strip and Kanyunis. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 29,000 people in Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7 stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from NBC News. Though Israelis have valid fears after the cruel barbarity of October 7, Israel must make peace with the Palestinians and the Arab world to ensure its lasting security. Everyone can agree that the PA has many issues that must be urgently fixed, namely its corruption and Abbas's weakness. Nonetheless, Israel cannot reoccupy the Gaza Strip, which would be a significant strategic blunder, and Israeli leaders must realize that only a revitalized PA can manage Gaza's civil administration so normal life can return to the Strip as soon as possible. Here's a pro-Israel narrative from the Jerusalem Post. Israel simply cannot work with a political entity that lacks the moral character to condemn Hamas's October 7 terror attack, regardless of U.S. plans to force a reformed PA on Israel. 
The PA would be incapable of demilitarizing Gaza or de-radicalizing its population, meaning that the chance that an attack like October 7 could happen again remains. To solve this, Israel will instead rely on a network of trustworthy and independent locals to manage Gaza's civil affairs, while it holds strategically essential terrain. And the pro-Palestine narrative from The Intercept. The great irony of the debate regarding the PA and Gaza's post-war governance is that Palestinians, especially in the occupied West Bank, overwhelmingly see the political body as an extension of Israel's occupation. Even if one disregards Israel's unrealistic plans for running Gaza, Mahmoud Abbas and his lame-duck administration in Ramallah are deeply unpopular, and Palestinians simply do not want to be governed by the PA. The U.S. must realize that it can't force Palestinians to acquiesce to its geopolitical interests, and it will have to be more creative if it wants to set the conditions advantageous to ending this conflict. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 58% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Multiple cell service outages disrupt the U.S. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, NBC, Fox News, CBS, and the New York Post. According to the website downdetector.com, cell service provider AT&T dealt with more than 60,000 reports of service outages as of 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time Thursday. Service providers Verizon, T-Mobile, U.S. Cellular, and Consumer Cellular also experienced outages but at a much smaller scale. Among the customers affected, a reported 51% said they had issues with cell phone service, 8% said their issues were with internet outages, and over 33% said they had no service at all. AT&T's outage began at around 4 a.m. Eastern Time, with over 32,000 customers reporting no service. That total topped out at over 71,000. More outages were reported in Houston, Chicago, Dallas, L.A., and Atlanta. While T-Mobile and Verizon also received 800 outage reports, those companies said the issues they were having only occurred when their customers tried to call or text people who use AT&T. Emergency services reported that people were calling 911 to see if their phones were working, to which the police told them to stop. Representatives from AT&T and its subsidiary Cricket Wireless told customers to use Wi-Fi calling until the issue is resolved. No cause for the outage has been reported, and the Federal Communications Commission says its Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau is actively investigating the situation. Meanwhile, a defense official told Fox News there was no indication it was a cyber attack. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Here's a narrative A from the New York Times. Luckily, this issue appears to have been mostly limited to AT&T customers who have the luxury of using Wi-Fi networks for calls while the company investigates the matter and solves the problem. Any wider outage might have meant a cyber attack that would have required a greater response. Wired Magazine has narrative B. AT&T, a multi-billion dollar company, went too far in asking its paying customers to inconvenience themselves and use Wi-Fi calling. Many Americans are being left stranded by this outage, and the company better have a good explanation to customers and the government when the investigation is complete. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 5% chance that an infrastructure disaster costing greater than $1 billion in a G20 country will be widely attributed to an AI cyber attack before 2025. I got fiber internet and I never leave my house, so I'm on Wi-Fi calling like all the time. Oh, okay. So you just have to hope that the internet doesn't go out. 
if the if the internet goes out, I have a backlog of books I've been supposed to read, so I have that. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple weeks, and then that that's the that's it. I think that's that's, that's all it. I got. Yeah. <laughs> then you'll have to take a walk outside. Oh no! <laughs> Apparently, a new trend among young people is this like life hack: go for a walk without listening to anything on your phone. Just walk without anything. That's a life hack in your ear. Yeah, that's a new mindfulness life hack. Oh, think! Oh, look how much better you'll feel if you take technology out of your brain for yeah. five seconds. And, yeah. and I wanted to laugh at it, but I was like, oh, no, I always listen to stuff when I'm walking around. too. <laughs> oh, no, I need to use this life hack. It's true. It's true. Also, not their fault. We're the ones who set them up for this. So that's right. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, young people. A Texas judge rules a school can enforce short hair. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, CBS, NBC, the Texas Tribune, and CNN. A Texas judge Thursday ruled a high school didn't violate the state's Crown Act by disciplining a black student who refused to cut his dreadlocks, an acronym for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. Crown Act prohibits race-based hair discrimination. Houston-area student Daryl George sued the Barbers Hill Independent School District after his school suspended him for not cutting his hair. The school's handbook stipulates that male students cannot have their hair extend beyond their eyebrows or earlobes or below their shirt's top collar. George has been on in-school suspension or at an off-site disciplinary program since August, and he and his family said the punishment violates the Crown Act which was passed last September. The school district argues that the law doesn't address hair length. Judge Chap Kane sided with the district, saying the Crown Act doesn't protect hair length, only textures and styles. George will remain on in-school suspension, which he says has damaged his mental health. George and his family say they will appeal the decision. They have also filed a civil rights lawsuit against school officials and Texas state officials, for failing to enforce the Crown Act and inflicting emotional distress. The school district in September requested a judge clarify the Crown Act's relation to hair length, as it has faced previous lawsuits regarding its hairstyle policies. Narrative A comes from the Daily Beast. This ruling allows Texas schools to discriminate against students based on hairstyle, dealing a crushing blow to black students who want to express themselves. Dreadlocks should be protected by the Crown Act, But it's no surprise this school is in a district with a history of racial discrimination that doesn't see it that way. This ruling must be overturned. And here's narrative B from the Daily Caller. The George family is causing an unnecessary ruckus. The Crown Act doesn't apply to hair length, and the district's dress code is universally applied to students of all races. It's wrong to claim that the school is discriminating against George, and this ruling was the correct one. Okay, I grew up in Texas. I went to elementary and middle school. In Texas, middle school being the the problem here, right? Because if you have shorts that you had to stand up straight and put your hands next to your thighs, right? And if your middle finger went beyond your shorts, they were too short and then you'd Mm. get in trouble. It's Texas, all right? This was Houston. The hottest, most uncomfortable place possible, yes. And like 100% humidity Mm -hmm. all the time, right? So you are always in shorts. I have several times had shorts that were like one, one digit, too short, and then you get in trouble for that. Did you have to stand up and do that every day, or just someone would it like was just spot like, check you? Someone would like kind of eye it and say, I, I 
think those are too short. Now, these weren't shorts where it's like, they were like from the gap or whatever. I was right. the awkward seventh grader who's wearing shorts to school because it's hot. And I just remember like, there was an unspoken like, I'm looking at you, administrator, and you're looking at me, and you know me, and you know I'm a good student, and you see me giving you these eyes like, this is the biggest waste of time that both of us will have never get back right, right. now. <laughs> what are we doing here? I'm starting to feel like school uniforms aren't the worst thing in the world. I remember thinking, you know, like where I would never had this hair situation, but, uh, you know, like... Oh, I got to wear this certain thing. I got to wear this certain thing. There is something to be said for like, everyone's kind of going to wear the same thing. It's a levels the playing field. You know, um, we had that talk um, many times uh, growing up, uh, mm -hmm. just among students and parents, but also among the school district. Like, should we wear uniforms or not? And I think they even debated it as a school district for a while. And a lot of people were on board. Like, there's no more of this fashion competition. There's none of this like putting mm -hmm. a ruler by your shorts or having your right. hair or whatever. We all it's have like, the same shorts. Those are the shorts. You yeah. don't have to worry about get your outfit and buy all these clothes. It shows uh, some equality because, you know, if someone's poor and someone's rich, there's less of a, a noticeable difference in the clothing. And yeah, I, I think it's, it's a good idea. Never happened, though. Yeah. My uh, kindergartner currently, they have to wear a uniform at school in the school that he's in. And then, but also what they can do, actually tomorrow is dollar dress down day. So then oh, it's like a big, mean? you know, you have to like give a dollar, then you get to not wear your uniform on a certain day. Uh, um, okay. And that's kind of cool. But like, it's funny where you set the expectation. Now he gets to wear what he wants for this one day. Makes that a big treat when it would have just been whatever. You know, I don't know. There, there's, a, you know, people's, oh, it's a financial burden to have to buy the uniforms. I think it's a worse financial burden to buy fancy clothes or whatever clothes for your kid. Is your so, kid in um, public school? Uh, it's a, it's like a charter school is what it is. The town that we live in is an unbelievable school district, but we mm. are in another town school district. Five minutes from our house is wow, a very nice school. You mentioned that. Yeah. But if he he would have to drive 40, 35 minutes in a bus to get to the school he was supposed to go to, which is way worse, instead yeah. of a five-minute drive. That's or, so dumb. You know, it's so weird how they map that out. Mm. I mean, it may not be gerrymandered, but it's some weird line drawn for some weird reason. And they yeah. can't redraw it because if they put us into the better school district, my house would be worth $100,000 more overnight. Like well, then they be, should do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they should yeah. definitely do that. And then the, I, politically, I'm against charter schools because I think that that, how is this, how are public schools going to get off their feet? If like, so the tax yeah. money that we should be sending the schools who desperately need it because their school system blows, our money is going to the charter school mm. and our students going to the charter school. But on the other hand, their school sucks. So I'm not going to send my kid to the sucky school. Yeah. Google apologizes for Gemini's historical inaccuracies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, Quartz, The Telegraph, The Daily Wire, The Guardian, and Verge. Google on Thursday issued an apology after its artificial intelligence chatbot Gemini generated historically inaccurate or implausible images in its attempt to be diverse and inclusive. Google paused image generation by Gemini after several examples of this were posted online, including racially diverse Nazi-era German soldiers and a black pope. 
Gemini apparently also failed to generate images of white people. One Gemini user said it would generate the image of a black family, but not when asked for a white family. When asked to create an image of America's founding fathers, it included a woman and people of color in it. Gemini also reportedly provided answers about the Israel-Palestine conflict with a bias against Israel. Jack Krawczyk, a senior director on Google's Gemini team, Wednesday said Gemini's depiction of diverse people was generally a good thing because people around the world use it, but added that it's still missing the mark. This month, the image generation service was added to Gemini, formerly known as BARD. Thanks, Melissa. The left narrative spin comes from Forbes. These issues are expected because most AI developers are white men who are trying to avoid embedding their innate biases into the technology. There's been an overcorrection, but it's fixable and preferable to AI adopting disturbing stereotypes about other races. And here's a right narrative from the New York Post. Gemini was designed by humans who seem to think American and European history is too white. So now what was previously assumed about the big tech leaders and what they think of Western civilization has become fact. No apology can make up for their clear disregard for actual history. Digital Information World brings us Narrative C. Gemini and other AI products are in their infancy, and it's better to have this debate out in the open than to allow technology to develop biases one way or the other. It will take far more training, but eventually, AI will strike the right balance when it comes to understanding and explaining history. And here's a nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 50% chance that if there is an artificial intelligence catastrophe this century, it will happen by July 2037. U.S. COVID deaths are likely 16% higher than official records. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the National Academy of Sciences and The Guardian. A new study has found that far more COVID-era excess deaths in the U.S. could be attributed to the infection, which would mean the number of COVID deaths was at least 16% higher nationally than the official tally. The study, published in the American journal PNAS, observed 1 million 194,610 excess natural cause deaths between March of 2020 and August 2022, of which 162,886 were not attributed to COVID. The overall national rate of non-COVID to COVID excess deaths was 15.8 per 100 overall and 36 in non-urban areas, 31.6 in Western Rocky Mountain states, 25.5 in Pacific states, 26 in East South Central states, 25 in South Atlantic states, and 24.2 in West-South Central states. The researchers believe this was caused by a lack of both testing and knowledge of symptoms at the beginning of the pandemic, as well as varied systems of counting deaths at state and local levels due to the politicization of the pandemic. The study also found that the total number of excess deaths in the first year of the pandemic was almost equal to the number in the pandemic's second year arguing that this was due to the COVID infection rather than disruptions to the healthcare system. Thank you, Scott. We'll start these spins with Narrative A from the BU School of Public Health. This data finally shows the reason behind this mysterious uptick in excess deaths during the pandemic, which turns out not to be that mysterious at all. From government officials down to their constituents, many Americans declined or were encouraged not to count family deaths due to political reasons. Instead, they pointed to things like drug overdoses as the reason for rising excess fatalities. In reality, 
public health bodies were insufficient in their counting and thus trivialized the dangers of COVID's lethality. And the New York Post brings us narrative B. The nation's experts who claimed COVID deaths were skyrocketing for three years eventually backtracked, admitting they were overcounting by 70%. Even the strongest proponents of the original COVID excess death theory, including national public health officials and reporters, have now admitted that those who died with COVID were lumped in with those who died from it. This context is essential. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 5% chance that a new SARS-CoV-2 variant classified as a variant of concern, or worse, will result in at least 20,000 daily incident COVID hospitalizations in the United States before July 1st, 2025. Tested myself again yesterday. No COVID. I'm doing better. I was coughing so much with Eric yesterday. I'm doing better today, but I might be. You are. I'm I'm taking a, um, I still sound congested in my head anyway. Do I sound congested? You sound a little congested, but pretty good all in all. Well, thank you. I mean, you sounded real sick last week. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I know. (laughs) All right. Our final story, an uncontrolled European satellite plummets to Earth. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Associated Press, The Guardian, Space.com, NBC News, BBC News, and LiveScience.com. On Wednesday, the defunct European Remote Sensing 2 satellite plummeted into Earth's atmosphere where it disintegrated over the Pacific Ocean between Hawaii and Alaska. No injuries or damage were reported from the reentry. ERS-2 met its demise after 30 years in space. The European Space Agency reported that while most of the debris incinerated in the atmosphere, some pieces landed in the Pacific Ocean. Photos of the descent, occurring between January 14th and February 3rd, were released Monday. The ESA compared ERS-2 as being close to the size of a school bus and weighing more than 5,000 pounds. In a post about the event, the ESA said that at the time of the launch, the satellite was the most sophisticated Earth observation spacecraft ever developed and launched by Europe. Launched in 1995, ERS-2 was designed to collect data on Earth's water, ice, and land surfaces. In commission of its duties, it also monitored natural disasters like floods and earthquakes. The satellite was decommissioned in 2011 when it was orbiting at 484.67 miles above Earth. After operations concluded, it was lowered to 354.18 miles above Earth, where the fuel and battery storage were discarded to prepare for re-entry. This comes as the world's space agencies have reported more than 30,000 pieces of decommissioned equipment are floating in space, also known as space junk. These rogue and uncontrollable objects can be dangerous. Thank you, Scott. Here's a Narrative A spin on this story from the Center for International Governance Innovation. We owe life as we know it to satellites in orbit. Without satellites, we wouldn't have real-time communications, weather monitoring for catastrophic events like hurricanes and wildfires, systems for national security, and more importantly, a means to understand climate change and its impact. Narrative B comes from The Guardian. There have been too many dangerous interactions with space junk caused by decommissioned or rogue equipment. But this junk isn't just a threat in the air. It could also cause a catastrophe when it lands in populated areas of Earth. There must be a global effort to reduce this human-created celestial threat. And the nerds have the final word from Metaculus, saying there's a 20% chance that the spin launch will lift a satellite to low Earth orbit by January 1st, 2032. 
I mean, luck have it, it's going to land, bad luck have it, it's going to land on the poorest people on Earth. You just know it's going to make it worse for people who already have it bad. You ever see The Gods Must Be Crazy, that movie where the guy throws a Coke bottle over like deepest Africa and it, people find the Coke bottle and it creates a crazy situation? No. Yeah, it's like an 80s movie. It was a pretty good God, movie. must be crazy. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. More information on Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.